Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey guys, I'm super excited. My album comes out next week. It's called My Big Break, released on May 26th. It's all about me having broken my feet. It's a lot of, uh, I tie in some psychological concepts. I talk about how we've evolved to process negative emotions. So you'll learn a little something. And more importantly, you'll laugh a lot. That's kind of the point of a stand-up comedy album record i believe um i'm real excited about this one i think it's i think it's very original and different and i think it's the best work that i've done and especially if you're a fan of this podcast i think you are going to agree with me and so make sure and keep an eye out for that i will have more info on my website at shane moss m-a-u-s-s dot com and I will be posting stuff on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot about it. Again, that's uh, that's May 26th. So keep an eye out for that and enjoy this episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm uh, I'm doing my second uh, interview uh in a row today i have three lined up today here at the arizona state university this is a, this is a retake this is a, my second my second take at this intro because i'm already um uh, running low on the old glucose in the brain and so i'm hoping that i'm going to get through all uh three interviews um uh, with, with uh flawlessly and and keep them all entertaining and interesting now i'm in the department of psychology and i'm talking to uh the foundation professor of psychology steve newberg i i like to intro intro people with a question mark <laughs> sounds, <laughs> the, sounds, pre- sounds pretty fancy <laughs> it sounds like i really know what i'm talking about what what is the foundation professor it's it's just a designation that the university uses when it wants to give someone a designation so they don't go and take a job someplace else. Ah, <laughs> that, that that that's that's mostly what it is. New title, uh, but, but, and uh, a little more pay. But it's flattering. It's uh, and well, and actually, it's it's money for doing research, which is one of the most valuable parts of it. A little bit of a research slush fund, if I might say. So that's great. Let's, it, let's be explore things I wouldn't be able to explore otherwise. It always surprises me how little, um, how much you guys are able to do with what seems like such a small amount of money. When I when I hear about some um, uh, various studies, how how much like a, a you know an average psychology study might cost that you can run a whole study for like five thousand dollars or something like that, uh, where where you have undergrads and everything i guess that's the cheap labor and that's how it that's 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 one source of uh of of cheap uh research participants there's some other sources as well but yeah if you're doing research on community interventions and things of that sort where you're taking up a lot of people's real time 
uh, the amount of uh, the amount of funding required to do that goes goes up substantially. Is that we were talking before we started um, before we started recording? We were talking about what our favorite parts of our job were, and we we kind of had something in common. Which I was I was sharing. I was saying my my absolute favorite part of my job is when I have a new joke idea or one that i'm excited about rather and just because i'm excited about a joke doesn't mean it's going to work sometimes i'm not excited about a joke and it turns out that's the audience's favorite thing they've ever heard in their life i'm like really that i didn't think that was and then i have these precious babies that i think are just a gold mine this is going to be i'm going to open and close with this thing this is going to be a standing ovation (laughs) and it comes out of my mouth and then just blank stares (laughs) so if you were a scientist and you thought about those ideas as hypotheses you know the question is you know do you keep testing them over and over and over and over again uh or after your first failure do you say well the audience knows you know sometimes (laughs) if i think i've got an idea that's really good and i think i've got a good rationale i keep thinking well maybe i'm just not testing it right maybe i'm not looking at it right that's Uh, that's kind of that's how i feel about a lot of mine i mean if my first inclination is there is something here i mean for me it's different because it's i'm i'm like well i'm probably what's happening is i'm miscommunicating my idea and but also with my job it's it's uh it has a lot to do with confidence. So if I'm excited about it, the first night I go out, the joke works. And then the second night, I'm, I'm not as excited about it, and, I, and it's not as genuine, and it doesn't work. Whereas research, it becomes more finely tuned as, as you right, but go we- along. Like when your paper gets rejected, you can't just be like... Well, what if I say it louder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lot louder doesn't tend to help. Well, but we do have this other thing in common. Eventually, you have to look, and you know, uh, nat- nature is what it is. And whether it's people in a crowd at a at a stand up, or whether it's the data that we're getting from the world, you know, you have to listen. To, you have to listen to nature. So there are only so many times you can tell a joke that bombs, right? right? And there are only so many times I'm going to think that this idea that's so brilliant uh, may still be true, right? I mean, at some point you say. You know I'm wrong, and that's what and that's sort of the cool thing about science is that you know it'll tell you that you're wrong, and right. uh, and then you move on. But the most exciting thing for me as well is uh, is generating the ideas and uh, and playing with really smart graduate students and generating ideas, seeing what you can uh, how they develop, seeing what you can uh, do with them. When the job when the job is at its best, it's really like play, uh, as as opposed to work. I'm going to, just for the sake of sound, move our drinks onto a paper surface because I'm hearing Just to it clarify, we're talking about non-alcoholic drinks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 it is I happy like to, hour in London, but we're not in London. I like to leave it up to the imagination. <laughs> who, who knows what we're doing? Um, well, so you do a lot of stuff with uh, prejudice and stereotype, and this didn't occur to me until just now. But um, but a lot of what I'm doing each night is going up and I'm making a broad sweeping generalization <laughs> about a whole room full of people. And um, I mean, nowadays, it depends. Like I just recorded an album, so it was leading up to the album, it was... This is the material I'm doing, and I'm doing this material no matter how you guys respond. But a lot of times, my my act is um, involves to some degree or another, kind of reading a crowd, and I'm I'm making generalizations about how intelligent I think a crowd might be. I'm I'm making generalizations about um, the 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 maybe the median age and and possibly determining what references might work based on age um i'm a really big thing is uh levels of enthusiasm so i'm watching how they're responding to another comic and and these aren't always i've been at this 11 years and i know that a lot of times these generalizations um they help and then oftentimes i'm dead wrong um maybe i walk in i wasn't watching the the comic um 
uh, in the beginning, they went up and alienated the whole crowd with some horrific, like, racist joke or something like that. And I only see the second half of their act. And I'm like, how come no one's laughing at this? This is pretty funny. And so I'm like, well, this is a dead audience. And then, you know, I'm making that generalization, but I can be wrong. But it, it's so it it is interesting how we all kind of use stereotyping in one way or another in our everyday lives. Right. Well, so the example that you have is really a great one because, you know, you talked about, well, I'm trying to figure out how smart they are and I'm trying to figure, I'm looking at their age, I'm looking at enthusiasm. What you're really trying to do is you're trying to make an inference about uh, whether they sort of afford you, whether they offer you the opportunity of laughability or something like that. Yeah. Right. You're trying to you try you're trying to get a sense of the of the responsiveness of the audience, and what yes. you're doing is you're using cues, right? And so you know, knowing you have a young audience makes you makes you think that well, some of the material I have may work better. Uh, for them, because this is what young folks are like, or if they're already funny, well, now I can get maybe a little bit edgier. Some things that folks may cringe at, maybe they won't cringe at. Uh, so maybe they'll they'll it'll sort of move it over into uh, in, into humor. And you know, the the foundation for for almost all the work I do on stereotyping prejudice is really based on this idea uh, that what the job of the of the social mind is is to sort of assess the affordances of the people around us. That is, that's a technical word. But assess the threats and opportunities that people pose to us, right? Is this person going to be dangerous? Is this person going to be nurturing? Is this person going to offer me an alliance or a cooperation or something of that sort? In fact, we do this with everything. When you came in, into my office and you, you looked at the chair and you sat down in the chair, you were essentially assessing the sit-upon ability of the, of the chair. You were looking at it. Now, the chair could have been something that would have been very funky, and you would have looked at it and you might have hesitated before sitting down or maybe it wouldn't even have looked like a chair it would have been a big bag of beans or something uh, of that sort but what the mind does is it tries to figure out what threats and opportunities are out there in the world and when we're talking about people trying to figure that out as well well you can't see whether someone necessarily wants to do you harm directly you can't see people's intentions and their goals you have to use cues right and so when we're talking about stereotyping and prejudice we're talking about using cues like well, geez, how old is someone? Are they male? Are they female? Are they a young male? Are they an old male? Uh, are they a member of my group? Are they a member of a, of a different group? Uh, and we use that information as, uh, as sort of heuristics to try to get close to thinking about, well, what's this person going to offer me? Is this person going to be threatening in different kind of ways? Is this person going to give me opportunities in, in certain kind of ways? Right. Uh, so our brains have these, these uh, heuristics, these rule of, uh, rule of thumbs that um, – rules of thumb? How, what's the plural of that? That, that would be right. <laughs> <laughs> we only have two thumbs, but we have, but we have many more rules. Yeah, rules mm -hmm. of thumb. Um, so I, I come in and – so rather than my brain have to sit and calculate every single new item over and over again and, and all of the neurologic processes that would be involved in that, I, I walk in, I go, chair, eh, I can sit in that. It kind of, I have this idea that it, it's going to rock or swivel because I've seen other things mm -hmm. like that, but... Um, but you know, may, maybe if I took a little more time and analyzed it before sitting down, I would know. Oh, one of the wheels is missing. I'm, you might I'm want gonna, to sit on the one next. Yeah, next I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tip over yeah. or something like that. But but it it just doesn't pay um, right. necessarily to every single time trying to be dissecting every single mm -hmm. variable and everything that could go right or wrong. That, that's right. So you know. You know, a lot of my very early research started back when I was in grad school. We looked at when people sort of go beyond their stereotypes, right? And so in social interactions where, uh, where the consequences of the interaction are really sort of slight – it doesn't necessarily make sense to devote all this, all this, these mental resources to trying to figure out everything about the persons uh, we're interacting with. On the other hand, if the person is your boss, if the person's a potential uh, long-term relationship partner, uh, then it's really important uh, to, to dive down deeper and to learn more of the nuances of the individual, right, to individuate them as opposed to just, you know, categorize them, to individuate them because your outcomes depend on them. And if my outcomes depend on you, I want to figure out what's driving you. I want to know your inclinations are, your goals, your because if I understand that, I'm better able to manage you 
mm-hmm. right? To manage the threats and opportunities that you may pose to enhance my own my own goals and move me towards my own goals and enhance my own outcomes. If I were talking to a potential mate right now, I might really be hanging on right. your, your every right. word. As opposed to just saying, I got some middle-aged, middle-aged white guy across the table from Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure I have enough interesting <laughs> yeah. questions so that the audience is... <laughs> but, you know, you, you don't... Uh, if you had breasts, maybe I'd be really into this well, at conversation. At uh, you start growing them, so something for you to look out for in the future. <laughs> and, uh, but... Um, that being said, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm here for a specific purpose and I'm, I'm getting information out of this and I'm also providing, um, a service to people and, 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 you know, getting attention from using this as entertainment. Whereas if I see you, the same person on a bus or just I'm passing, and uh, we're going to be standing next to each other for a minute, so maybe we'll say, hey, how are you, nice day, whatever. But, but I don't really need to dig in. That's right. I mean, here's the other interesting thing about this idea of uh, trying to figure out what other people afford us, right? So if you look at someone, you sort of get a sense of what – my favorite example here is uh, imagine I'm holding up an orange in front of you right now, mm-hmm. and I ask you what it's for, and what are you going to tell me? Uh, I would say it's for eating. Okay. You'd say, and if you were hungry, you'd especially say it's for it's yeah. for providing nutrition. Now, let's say there's, I say there's a really large guy running at you with uh, angry expression and a bat in his hand. What's it for? Throwing it's at for him. Throw- oh, wow. Now, now there's that beautiful woman sitting across from you right now. What's it for? It's for a gift. It's a gift. Now, the orange hasn't changed. The orange has the same kind of affordance potential to it, right? It has certain characteristics, but its value to you, what it means to you in terms of threats and opportunities, depend partially on what your own needs are, right? As you, as your needs move from hunger to self-protection to mate acquisition, right, the value, what that, what that orange affords changes as well. And we can think about this when we interact with people, right? Uh, depending on what your goals are right now, I can afford you very different things because I have a lot of characteristics, right, that, that can be managed uh, by you to help facilitate your own, uh, your own goals. Right. So um, I, I'm curious if, if uh, you asked the same question to a child, uh, list as many things as possible that you can do with this orange, uh, you know, kids are, uh, might come up with 20 different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas adults are, are are pretty limited in in their scope. Now, is that uh, sometimes the way that that's phrased? It's almost like, well, it, it's, it's that adults are losing creativity as they get older. Is it that, or is it just that we're zeroing in on on um, kind of how life generally operates and 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 zeroing in on like kind of these usefulness cues. Well, or, or we may have a different set of, uh, or a narrow set of goals that we happen to be perceiving. So now let's say you take this orange, you got a bunch of kids. I remember from a previous podcast, you were in Marty Hazleton's kids playroom. Yeah. Right? And, I, I, and uh, I've been to Marty's house, but I, I, I don't remember a playroom. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but imagine there are a bunch of blocks and things like that in the playroom. And uh, and you you hand the kid an orange and you and you look at what a kid does with an orange. Well, a kid might eat the orange just like we might eat the orange. If the if the if the kid is uh, uh, you know precocious, may offer it to the cute little uh, boy or girl. Yeah. Neck, right. On the other hand, it may you may use the uh, the orange to knock down blocks. Right. Yeah. Might uh, balance or, or, it on or, his or head. Might balance on his head. May roll it down some kind of uh, you know inclined surface or something like that. Because what the kid is doing. Is the kid is uh, the kid's goal is play? It's curiosity. It's experimentation. Well, you know, if I put you in the room, right, and you're bored and you don't have anything else to do, and there's an orange sitting there along with all the blocks, you may end up doing the same kinds of things that the kid's doing. Except that's not the life that you live, and that's not the life I live most of the time, unless we're hanging out with, uh, you know, hanging out with my kids. Uh, and so we have goals that are more important to us at the time, that are more salient to us at the time, things that we need to accomplish. Um, and that narrows, I think, a little bit uh, what we see as the affordance values of the people around us and the, right, we underestimate what people have to offer us 
as well because, you know, we see someone only within a work context or we see them only, you know, uh, at a bar at night or we only, only see them at a family reunion, right? So we've categorized them in a certain kind of way, which in fact makes it harder for us to see the other things that they would have to offer, good and bad. Ah, that's interesting. So we have, as adults, we have more developed goals and therefore a, a more specific understanding of what we're after. I, th- I think that's possible. I think that's... Hmm. Um, so, so how does... Um, so can you expand a little more on, on prejudice then? So, so how... Uh, you know, we're... we're we're kind of talking about all of the good things that come along with, um, uh, you know, not having to uh, um, use all of your metabolic uh, right. <laughs> energy on mm-hmm. on analyzing every chair before you sit down. Right, right. So, so you know, I've been talking about threats and opportunities. When we think about a lot of prejudices. Uh, we, we don't think so much about the opportunities we could talk, but we, th- we, th- we think more, much more about the threats. If you go back and you look at the traditional way in which social psychologists, which, which, by the way, is my training, and sociologists and political scientists and the like have thought about prejudice, it's typically sort of seen as a, just a negative attitude towards a group of people. It's just, you know, how much do you dislike versus like them, view them unfavorably versus favorably, they're bad versus they're good. Well, if you take, if you, if you take this sort of threat management perspective, the first question you really need to ask is, well, what threat? Because it turns out that your that your emotional reactions to folks depend a lot on the threat. So, for example, uh, if someone's running after you with a bat, what do you experience? What's your emotion? Fear. Okay. Now, uh, someone is in front of you throwing up and bleeding out of uh, bleeding out of all parts of the body. What's your emotional reaction? Um, uh, well, either it's partially uh, fear. It, if you're, if you're, either I'm either, but, maybe I'm a little grossed up, but I want to help. Yeah. I, so it's a it's disgust, but maybe you've got some compassion and some yeah, yeah. sociality. They're as well. vulnerable. Someone walks up and uh, and steals. Uh, uh, steals uh, your your laptop out of your hand and starts running. What's your emotion? Anger. Anger. Now, here's the thing. These are all negative emotions, right? So fear, we would say, is is negative. Right? If you ask, if you only ask people, you know, how good or bad are you feeling after these things? Well, you're going to be at the bad for all three of these things. And and the way and and so the way social psychologists and others have thought about prejudice. All these things have been lumped into each other, right, lumped together, all these different kind of badnesses. If you think about it from a threat management perspective, it really makes a difference what the threat is. So groups that are seen as taking more than their fair share, well, we have anger and resentment towards them. And what does that mean in terms of how you're now going to interact with them? Well, you're more likely to approach folks you're angry at in order to, in order to rectify the wrong or to, or to gain retribution from them in order to deal with the fact that they've wronged you in that particular kind of way. On the other hand, someone who, someone who you view, a group that you view as, uh, as physically dangerous, as violent, right, as criminally violent, well, we're going to fear them. That's going to suggest very different implications for what dis- our discriminations or discriminatory behavior is going to look like, right? We're going to have more police around. We're going to put lights on our houses. You know, we're going to want longer prison sentences, right? Folks who elicit uh, disgust, uh, uh, gay men, for example, people who are people who are obese, people who have different kinds of uh, obvious sort of uh, physical abnormalities, who elicit disgust, mm. we, we want to avoid physical contact from them. Very, so, so taking the threat management approach essentially says that depending on the threat, you get very different emotional reactions, which lead to very different kind of discriminatory behaviors. Just to say that someone's a member of, a, of an outgroup, so we don't like them, and so we do bad things to them, is, 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 is ignoring a lot of the really important nuance that you need to understand if you want to change things. And there's some great... There's some there's some really cool examples, right? So, uh, you know, in one of our studies, you know, we asked people about uh, Mexican Americans and gay men, among other groups. And if you just look at the way we conventionally measure prejudice, positivity, negativity, it looks like people have the exact same views towards gay towards gay men and Mexican Americans, but they don't. People's emotional reactions to Mexican Americans in this particular sample was way more dominated by fear, and with gay men, way more dominated by by disgust. Well, if we interact differently with people who, who we're afraid of versus we're disgusted by, then it's not so useful just to think in terms of negativity. Or here's another, here's one of my favorite examples. Uh, among college students, they view in terms of negativity, uh, well, 
they view fundamentalist Christians and activist, uh, activist feminists as essentially being the same person. Now, that seems Wait, who does? College students. Okay. So college students. So if you ask them, and you ask them about you know, what the perceptions are of the, of the threats and opportunities that are posed and their emotional reactions to a bunch of different groups, and included in here is fundamental Christians, fundamentalist Christians and activist feminists, it's as if they're the identical groups. Well, that's sort of interesting because you put those two groups together in a room, and now you've got something for your next comedy routine, right? Right. These groups right. won't get. A, on the other hand, from a typical college student point of view, these are both groups that sort of threaten constraint on behavior, right? These these are groups that have values that are more extreme than what your values are, and those may have implications. So here's this other cool thing that comes out of thinking about it from this perspective: groups that can be so stunningly different to the extent they're seen as posing the same threats, will actually elicit the same kinds of responses, right? Again, way more, way more nuanced and interesting than when you just think about out-groups bad, in-group good. Right. Well, it's also even, uh, I mean, something we've talked a lot about on this podcast is the very idea of, of negative emotions aren't necessarily a bad thing. If, if um, I mean, making broad sweeping generalizations about a group of people, sure, but, but if someone is coming down with a baseball bat mm-hmm. coming at you, that fear is meant to keep you alive. That's, That's right. a very good, you know, mm-hmm. if uh, the, the poor people that haven't, you know, pain's one of the worst things, someone that has recently broken mm-hmm. both of his feet, gone through a great deal of pain in the last year, Still way better than someone who doesn't feel pain, doesn't know when they've broken both of their heels in a a hiking, and then go walking around. They're not going to last very long. And and this raises an interesting question because from the social perceiver's point of view, these emotional reactions make a lot of sense. Uh, From the target's point of view, to the extent that the the person being perceived as threatening, you know, physical aggression – uh, they may say, but I'm not threatening physical aggression. From their perspective, it's a bad thing. But, of course, our mind evolved not to uh, not to improve the life benefits of these other people who we happen to come across. It's to, it's to enhance the likelihood for us. And it gets even, gets even exaggerated uh, because we tend to err on the side of uh, – of, of overestimating threat, right? So this is there's uh, a higher cost. There's a, high, there. there's a higher cost to making some some mistakes. Well, in fact, this links to some of Marty Hazelton's early work. Yep. Uh, Randy Nessie, who's here on campus as well. Randy's got this great metaphor of a smoke detector. Yeah. And if you think about the two kind of mistakes a smoke detector can make, it cannot go off when there's an actual fire, or it can go off when you're cooking bacon, you know, on Sunday morning or something. Those are two mistakes. Well, which mistake is worse? Well, dying, not, not going off, right? So not detecting the actual threat if it yeah. exists. So they calibrate these things at the fire, at the uh, at the factory, right? To be highly, highly sensitive to to they calibrate it so it's not going to make that costly mistake, but that as an implication, it means there's going to be a lot of false alarms. Right? Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's going to be irritating. But that irritating screech is way better than than you know dying one night in the middle of the night because it doesn't pick up the fire. Well, socially as well, we look for these cues, right? We use things like uh, like outgroupness, and you know, young men, young male outgroup members, right? You know, young men from other kind of groups. Uh, well, there's uh, they they do tend. To have less of a less of an interest in our own group, right? And young men in general tend to be more dangerous than other subsets of, right. of folks. You put those things together. Well, there's the possibility that if I'm going to get attacked by anybody, right, and who's who's uh, who doesn't care so much about my welfare, it's going to be a young man from another group, right? Right. Uh, and so I'm going to err uh, on my perceptions of this person, and, I, and that's going to reinforce uh, beyond accuracy. Uh, you know, the dangerousness, the stereotypes about dangerousness of, of young outgroup men, and particularly groups uh, uh, that within whatever particular culture you happen to be in uh, are in circumstances that may in fact make them more dangerous, like the environments that they live in and the like. 
Do you think sometimes that's um, maybe a miscalculation and in, in kind of projecting your own? Like, like I, I'm skeptical of young men probably more than a lot of people because I got into so much trouble as a young man. I was such a reckless person. I mean, I've been to jail. I've I got in all sorts of trouble. Oh, oh my and, God. You, you've, been, you've been to jail? You've yeah, I've been, been to jail a few times. Oh, uh, you yeah. know what? I, I, think, uh, I think I've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Just for, like, uh, drinking-related uh, things, but... Yeah. Yeah, so now you're stereotyping because I've been to jail. I'm a dangerous. I'm a dangerous threat. I do have this cane here that I'm that I'm wielding. I have this weapon. So, so if I can get past you, I'll outrun you. But the question is, is whether you can, I can get past you. Uh, All right. yeah. <laughs> so you're getting information and change. See, I I, I limped in here right. and I looked like this vulnerable person mm-hmm. with a cane, and now you find out about my criminal history. Right, and, and, and you're between me and the door, and you've got the, you got the cane and. Uh, I think a whole new set of calculations are required. But uh, what I mean by uh, the projecting, too, is I've often, uh, like, uh, sometimes I feel like, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to make broad statements about people who make broad statements right now. But uh, I, I would say that gay men get a lot of the brunt of the discrimination. Not, not that lesbians uh, don't as well, but I think gay men probably have it especially hard and a l- and the brunt of that is also coming from straight men or homophobic men other men basically and and um and, I, and why is i've got data on this that we've published recently why, why do you think that is well okay so first off i think that w- without knowing anything about what your data says or anything <laughs> else one web of causation be- behind everything but Two, what what if part of it is is that like I know as a guy that I have a that I'm a horny dude who has like a lot of gross disgusting thoughts and so then when you think about like that being aimed at yourself it's like oh wait a second it, it makes you think like oh I know the kind of gross thoughts that I've had in my mm-hmm. life to have some guy having those thoughts about me. Right. Um, so you're talking about unwanted sexual interest. Right. As, which, by the way, is a potential threat, right? Uh, it has, it's, a, it's a threat to uh, maybe your physical comfort, but it's also a threat to your social reputation if, if, folks, are, uh, if folks of the sexual orientation that you're not interested in mm-hmm. are, are hitting on you. It may, it may change other people's views of, of really what your own orientation is, which may limit opportunities for you. So uh, with one of my former students, Angela Prelat, we ran this study. So we were interested in this idea of unwanted sexual interest. Which, I never thought about that right? idea of like, oh, well, if you're friends with a gay guy, then other people might think you're gay. And, we, then- and their, their data, and we've had some data on what we call stigma by association. So if you actually are friends with a gay guy, you're more likely uh, to be stigmatized as opposed to if you're friends with what we present as an otherwise identical straight guy. Right, so you know we've we've run studies, yeah. So so there is so the fear of the stigma by association is is another thing that might be related there as well. How are you testing that? So in in those studies, what we did was essentially we had brought subjects into the lab and they watched what they thought was a live conversation between two friends as they were waiting for a for a study to start, and we just gave them information about these folks that implied that either they were they were both straight or one was straight and one was gay, and then and we got our people to give us impressions and what they thought about these different folks. I'm simplifying uh, by a great yeah, deal here. But the notion was everyone saw the exact same interaction except the label that they had, the cues we had given them, suggested uh, that one was going to be gay and or not, that the same guy is gay or not. And when the same guy was, uh, was, was straight, uh, he was viewed quite favorably, as was his straight friend. When that guy was viewed as gay, however, not only was he viewed less favorably, that's the basic stigma effect, but his friend also dropped as well. What we saw was stigma by association. We, we, we were interested whether we get normalization by, by association. That is, if we, have the, if we have the straight guy be a really super, uh, you know, well-likable, well-accomplished person, right? And, and I think we manipulated this in this study. He was, uh, he was sort of a leader on campus. He also had been invited uh, to try out for the U.S. Olympic team, whatever. He was considered he had been elected, uh, you know. Right. Good guy of the year. I'm making this up, but, some, but something of that sort. We thought, well, maybe the gay guy would, when the guy labeled as gay would be viewed more positively if, if this straight guy is hanging with him. 
But no, actually, the straight guy gets stigmatized even more uh, because, you know, and I, th I think, you know, our interpretation of the data at the time was of all people to be hanging out with with a gay guy. We had placed so much faith in this guy. This guy was so great really? that, that, uh, that, that he sort of crashed to the floor. Uh, right? So so stigma by association is a real thing. It happens out there. Yeah. And it might be another reason why folks are concerned with uh, unwanted sexual attention. So we run this study, and essentially, uh, you know, there's this idea about homophobia, which means straight people don't like gay people. But from a threat management perspective, well, it really depends. Uh, it depends on what your own sexual interests happen to be. And, of course, different, uh, different forms of uh, non-heterosexuality have different implications for me, right? So, uh, you know, uh, if I'm concerned with, un if I'm a straight guy and I'm concerned with unwanted sexual interest, mm. well, I might be more prejudiced towards gay guys. I might be more prejudiced towards bisexual guys and uh, lesbians. Well, they're, they're not heterosexual, right? but I'm not nearly. So the data show that, that our college age uh, samples are not nearly as prejudiced against lesbian. The males are not right. nearly. And bisexual women, they're viewed as favorably as heterosexual women are, right? So it's not just a straight homophobia. More so. Uh, and in some ways more so. Right, right, right. Uh, there's variation in the data. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't dive into that. For women, if it's just straight homophobia, they should be prejudiced against gay guys. Yeah, our hmm. college-age women are just as favorable towards gay guys as they are towards straight guys, right? They there's no unwanted sexual interest. The gay guys aren't posing any kind of threat of unwanted sexual interest. For the for the straight guys, the lesbians and the bisexual women are posing no threat of unwanted sexual interest. Although the bisexual guys are and the gay guys are, whereas uh, as straight women are just getting hounded by straight men constantly. So mm -hmm. that's that's the they're, they're a little more bit more used threat. to it. They're, they're they're a little bit more used to it. But of course, they also want straight men to be right. so so that's a cost the right that they kind want to assume. of. But but a bisexual man, right? I mean, these women are willing to have sex with men, right? They're heterosexual women, mm -hmm. but a bisexual guy, they don't like too promiscuous. Right, uh, uh, a bisexual woman, they who will have sex with men, just like heterosexual women have sex with men. They don't like them because of the potential of uh, of unwanted sexual interest. And and uh, straight women's college age straight women's views of uh, lesbians also uh, negative because again the possible threat of unwanted sexual interest. We compared this to other kind of models of sexual prejudice out there, mm. and and. Uh, and the unwanted sexual interest for college-age kids who are thinking about mating a lot, right? That's right. what college-age kids think about. Uh, that, that's no, what you used to think about. they're thinking about psychology <laughs> in your class and homework and they're, they're, stuff, they're, right? They're that's thinking, they're they're thinking, thinking about, about which, which other kids in their psych class they can potentially mate with <laughs> yeah. if, they, if they play it right. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that model of that particular threat, just thinking about unwanted sexual interest, predicted an awful lot of the patterns we saw across all these different sexual orientation groups. It's not just, not just homophobia in a general mm. kind of way, right? It depends on what the particular affordances are. You know, a bisexual woman affords me good stuff, right? A bisexual man man affords me bad stuff right. right and so and you saw the prejudices uh, you know move around as a function of that again sort of the value of thinking about uh, about these kind of stereotypes and prejudices from a threat management uh, perspective hmm I mean it still is interesting to me like uh, you know it, I, I think the kind of that's smoke alarm engineering principle is is um, is so great it runs through so many of our cognitive biases mm -hmm. but at the same time it is frustrating to a degree especially in our modern society where we maybe don't need to be on the the highest threat level all of the time and now we're all dying of stress mm -hmm. is probably a bigger threat than a lot of what our instincts are uh stressing us out about um but but even things like um uh you know, you're talking about, I think Marty and I talked about on my podcast, I was on crutches at the time and, and, um, I didn't realize there, there seems to be some sort of finding that the human brain has a very hard time telling what is contagious and what isn't. I, I imagine the thinking 
behind it would be our our ancestors had no idea about these germs and everything and so if you just had some natural inclination to just be like hey that that guy has a funny look or a funny walk or is coughing or whatever it might be let's just stay away you don't want to risk touching that that, that. that, that's it so people use physical abnormality it could be in movement it could be in the shapes of bodies it could be in the sizes of bodies either stunningly thin or stunningly fat right they use sizes of bodies as as ways of sort of and they're heuristic cues they're they're totally imperfect cues i mean yes if if someone is someone is, is vomiting that's a pretty good cue that there's that there's some kind of illness that's potentially uh transmittable yeah, but uh, if someone's, but, like, missing an arm, if, if missing, you have right. sex with them, your arm's not going to fall off. <laughs> well, well, that's right. And that's, that's, that's not contagious. That's right. And so, you know, uh, my colleague Mark Schaller up at University of British Columbia has done lots of really, really good work on this. One of my graduate students, she just actually just defended her dissertation two days ago. Uh, Dr. Gabrielle Philip Crawford now. Uh, for congratulations. Her, congratulations to Gabrielle. Uh, uh for her dissertation was looking at these sets of ideas that build off of uh, this idea of, uh, of contagion and particularly making the uh, argument that people who are sexually prejudiced view homosexuality as contagious and pro-gay ideology, in fact, as being contagious. And uh, they elicit, we already know they elicit disgust. And so right. if they view it as contagious, then how they act towards people who are gay should be similar to how they act against people who they think are infectious in other kind of ways as well. And she's done this really, really nice analysis of, uh, of all the kind of ways that people think about disease in general, uh, you know, you know how how vulnerable is somebody? So, for example, that would that would have implications for all these. You may especially not want gay people around your kids, right? Because kids are vulnerable to disease. Kids yeah. are vulnerable to this kind of transmission. We don't want to catch the gay. We don't want to. You don't <laughs> catch the gay. And so, so she's done a series. Of, and so the analysis is is really really quite nice. Uh, I mean, it it would be so laughable. If it weren't the case that people, people really do. Well, so the first thing she found is that people who are sexually, highly sexually prejudiced do believe that uh, that gayness can be transmitted, right? Now, everyone, whether you're sexually prejudiced or not, believes that, that, that pro-gay ideology can can transmit because those are just ideas, right. right? And ideas do, in fact, transmit. But the sexually prejudiced folks, well, here's a, some cool stuff. It's funny that, that they aren't scared of alcohol, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably the number one contributor to any unwanted <laughs> sexual Right, right. Their, their, own, their own inhibition, their, their right, own right. In, imbibing of alcohol, right. Uh, so if you think about like if you think about disease spreads, disease really spreads uh, in uh, in highly interconnected networks. So if mm-hmm. you think about what happens when there's when the flu is hitting, whatever, you know, when when the when the networks are highly interconnected, you know, the CDC and the local uh, health authorities have take much more aggressive efforts at at trying to to get rid of this disease. Right? They'll 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 keep people away from working at school. Uh, healthy and non-healthy. I mean, they, 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 they're way more aggressive in sort of attacking uh, this disease. Well, it turns out that people who, who both report living in highly interconnected networks, right, in communities, and if we manipulate in the lab, right, so what Gabrielle did was she convinced people that ASU uh, students are way either highly, highly interconnected that if they, that you're, the odds are pretty high if you meet a stranger that you're going to have some people in common that you guys are going to know versus low interconnectedness, right? That, that people, whether it's, it's they're thinking about their own actual community or we're manipulating their beliefs about the ASU community, if they think it's really, uh, they think it's really interconnected, they are, they report and in a game where you're essentially blasting noise at someone else, right, as a, as a measure of aggression, uh, mm-hmm. they're they're much more aggressive against gay people than straight people, right? So just in their mind, getting them to think about interconnectedness leads them to have to aggress to adopt a behavior that's more aggressive against these folks who they think are contagious, right? Mm. Uh, air quotes around contagious, uh, right? So the idea here is that people do have these these mechanisms in the mind to sort of assess, you know, infectability. Well, gayness has been linked to that for whatever reasons, and now people act towards gay folks, sexually prejudiced folks, act towards gay folks as if uh, that that potentially can transfer. Uh, 
It's fascinating. It's uh, a great, great, great project she has. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. So I've also had, um, I've had a couple episodes now um, talking about, I had an anthropologist um, uh, that goes down to Mexico and and talks with, um, with, with families to understand the effect of of uh immigration illegal immigration on you know when their husbands have to leave to go and try to send money back and then i i had an archaeologist come on who um who uh actually does modern archaeology go goes to like the borders and where where all the crossings are and finds like backpacks and stuff like that that people are leaving behind and what i'm trying to do um on this podcast is to um take take different topics and try to look at them from as many different angles and perspectives as possible so um so so you know immigration a huge and we're in arizona right now (laughs) where arizona or where immigration is a very very hot topic and a big deal and what do you think your work can do to inform us about how um, how we treat immigrants, how we form these these legislations, um, why people mm-hmm. vote the way they do. Right. So, I mean, I think you know, if you take this threat perspective and you think about the the range of threats that that at least certain kind of immigrants. So you started with uh, notions of people from Mexico and Central America sort of coming up uh, coming up through the southern uh, yep. border of of the of the states. Uh, well, they tend to be not uh, not of us and not of here, and therefore they're just not going to be as invested in in our group as right. So the people who are part of your group. That's almost almost by definition defined by people willing to do things, cooperate with one another. But someone from the outside, you know, they have they have no prior investment, right? And so that's that's one kind of lack of trust that that might exist. The idea of them coming up, uh, and the perception being that they're going to be taking more than they've contributed, right? Because they haven't been here to contribute. So at the beginning, certainly, you know, whatever resources exist in communities. Uh, the perception will be that they're taking more than they're giving. So that's an, that's another kind. So you have a resource threat. You have you know, are, do, do they really care about my welfare? Kind of threat. These folks are poor, and uh, and they uh, they live in the kind of they live in the kind of environments that are somewhat more desperate. That has that has health implications for disease. It has implications for the kind of behaviors one might engage in. Right. So if you're if you're hungry, if you're whatever, you may you may be more likely to commit certain kind of crimes yeah. than others. Right. So, so now, and well, not even not even uh, even a less dramatic way of looking at it is there certainly it's not like a, a tourists coming in that are going to spend a bunch of money in shopping and, and adding to the economy and then leave. That's right. That's right. Kind the of the opposite. Right. So, so now you think about in people's minds as they're viewing this particular group of folks coming in. Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're viewed as posing multiple threats. What that means is that any intervention that you might want to use in order to reduce those kind of prejudices has to attack multiple threats as opposed to just one. You know, this. Uh, hmm. Oh, where was I going to go with this? Well, it's it, uh, this happens a lot where right? usually it happens to me where I lose track. This might help get it back on. I, um, you know, as you're talking, it's making me think. You know, I I've met a lot of um, uh, Mexicans that are like third generation or whatever you now that are are here, and I, I've met uh, like third generation Mexicans that are against. Immigration, right. and I, I guess that would uh, that would be, it, um, it, you know, it's just an interesting way of looking at it. Of, of like, this isn't just, hey, this person's skin color is different. I mm-hmm. and, and you right. know, I'm Cause, big cause, and cause I hate them for it. There once, might actually be. There are actual yeah. social costs involved, right? Because because once you're already here, right. right, and you've adopted and been adopted by the by the uh, by the local community, then these folks from the outside are going to be seen as particular uh, particular kind of threats. Language is a stunningly important thing with this, right? Because the extent that you're speaking your home language instead of the 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 
the in-group language, the new group language, that's that's probably been maybe the the, the most important cue that, uh, that that our species has used for a very long time of knowing when there's been an infiltrator versus not, right? Because people live, didn't live with people who live around people who are very different looking than them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they're all not all that unrelated to one another, right? And people didn't travel all that far, and so the people would have been in the same ecologies if you, as you and the like. Language would have suggested something about some small cultural differences that would have emerged in this group on this side of the river and this group on the other side of the river, but they wouldn't have looked that different. They wouldn't have been of different races, right? Uh, they So language is a stunningly important cue. In fact, there's some research associated that infants pick up on language differences very quickly uh, and prefer, uh, prefer uh, you know, the language that they, they've heard. So you know, adopting a new group's language, adopting a new home's language is a, is a stunningly important cue, I think, for reducing stigmatization uh, there because it's such a powerful group uh, cue that says, ah, this person's different. Do you uh, think that- this played a big role in the diversity of language and the evolution of, of language? I mean, I, I kind of think because it's, it's not just about telling who's an outsider and who isn't. It's also... Um, you, you know, when, when you have your close group of friends and you kind of have your own way of, of talking right. and you have your own inside jokes or, or, you know, your spouse or mate or whatever it might be, or your children, mm-hmm. you have your own That's right. thing. And, and so, so it's not just about keeping the out group. Uh, it's also about solidifying this in-group relationship. You're, you're exactly right. So it's, it's, it's a marker of someone sort of accepting the norms of the, of the local group. Just like wearing, when I was a kid, there were the kids who wore Levi's and the kids who wore Jordache jeans. I don't even know if anyone, <laughs> any young person would know what Jordache jeans are anymore. Yeah, 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 you, I don't know if you're old enough to know. Yeah, okay, I okay, do okay, remember right. Jordache. Right. I, I usually <laughs> throw out Jabot jeans. Okay. Uh, that, there, there's there's a lot of weird old jean references right, 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 right. on this podcast. <laughs> right. So, but the notion was that, that that's just a marker. I mean, there's nothing special about it, right? You know, if, if you speak in uh, one accent, if you speak English in one accent or another you're still speaking the same language but the but the dialect the accent sort of marks you as being either part of this group or or part of a a part of another group there's this other really interesting thing about language as well because the extent that there's uh, the extent that that it's hard to learn the formal version of the language right to learn to speak english properly for example it does say something about the extent to which you're invested long-term as opposed to short-term. That is whether your life history strategy is one where you're future-oriented versus just present-oriented. And so there's a lot of research uh, that, that, that sort of talks about these sort of this continuum, and I'm going to caricature here, where you've got these fast strategies where people don't invest so much in, in sort of building long-term capital skills, relationships, those kinds of things, but they move towards mating faster. Mm. Right. They have more kids. They invest less than in their kids, whatever. And they they're more opportunistic when resources are available. And by the way, this is this comes out of the animal literature, not it's been it's, we're being a, we're adapting it now to human literature. Right. It came out. Of, so animals that do that versus animals that that sort of think long term. There are few kids born. They have a really long developmental period before they become sexually mature. The parents of uh, have. Uh, have a relatively small number of offspring. They invest a lot in them. Sort of this slower kind of slower kind of strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so learning like, the proper but, language suggests that you're investing long term as opposed to short term. And that's a cue, right? Because people who live in different ecologies, you know, tend to be people live in more desperate ecologies. Resources are scarce. They're unpredictable. There's a lot of external cues of mortality. People killing each other, or there's disease, or something like that. It may totally make sense for them to go fast, right? Yeah. You don't know if you're going to live. That's a normal strategy. If we, if an animal does it, we say that's a pretty smart animal, right? If they're in that ecology. When humans do it, we have stereotypes about those kind of folks. In fact, my students, Keila Williams and Oliver Singh, have been doing research on these kind of ecology stereotypes. If you tell, if you tell someone that someone's coming from this kind of ecology where resources are scarce and unpredictable versus resources are, are sufficient and they're going to be around for a while. And now you just ask them a bunch of characteristics of what these folks are like. What you find is that it's as if these are two different kind of people. The people who are perceived to come from one ecology, people will say they're, they're more impulsive. They plan less. They're more likely to have kids out of wedlock. Uh, uh, 
uh, and not invest as much in long-term uh, long-term sexual uh, partners. They're less likely to invest in themselves in terms of getting education and the like compared to the folks who grew up in these uh, more hopeful uh, kind of ecologies. And there's an interesting implication here. So when you've got when you got from the immigration example, people who come up and they're poor. Where, where do poor people, where do people who are coming up, new immigrants tend to go to unless they're coming from Shanghai and uh, Singapore and the like cause, and they're already highly educated? They tend to live in these, in these little parts of towns with other people who've come up from the same kind of place and they're poor. Whether you're thinking about Irish immigrants back in the 1820s, right, or you're thinking about Mexican immigrants now, they're living yeah. in these ecologies that are a little bit more desperate that pull for certain kinds of behaviors. It turns out that you know, in the United States, race isn't evenly distributed across ecologies. Black folks are more likely to live in these desperation ecologies. Whites are more likely to live in these hopeful ecologies. It turns out that the stereotypes of uh, African Americans in the United States are the exact same stereotypes that you see when you're thinking about people from desperate ecologies. Stereotypes of whites are the stereotypes of folks who come from these more hopeful ecologies. If you give people information, and we've got some uh, work that we're about to submit for publication now on this, if you give people information uh, that a black person is from a desperate or a hopeful ecology and a white person is from a hopeful or desperate ecology, and you ask the question, are the stereotypes of those people in those different categories driven by the race or driven by the ecology? They're driven by the ecology. Because what ecology you live in does actually have implications for the kind of behaviors that you engage in. Yeah. And it makes sense for the mind to be attuned to how people's behaviors are going to change as resources change. And I, I think a, kind of an important um, point to make a, is that a lot of times we look at these fast actions as this is irrational That's behavior. Right. That's right. Um, but but from, uh, from um, a life history point of view, it's... It, if if you only if you say happen to know that you only have so long to live because and and possibly what's giving you this information is cues in the environment you're living in a dangerous area um, it it would make sense to start mating earlier because who knows how long you're going to live and when we've talked a lot about this with with different animals right that's um, right. Uh, uh, where where males will. Um, uh, uh, I had uh, someone on t- talking about the uh, Robbie Wilson talking about the Australian mm-hmm. qual who, who, that that the males go out and and bone themselves to death basically in in one season as soon as soon as they can they use up all their energy just mm-hmm. screwing and whereas the females are uh, they can only crank out so many kids right. in a season anyway so they live longer it, it, have I it, I heard is. I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard um, that there's some data that tends to show that um, that females actually, or, or or that males and females will hit puberty earlier in areas where they're living this um, kind of faster lifestyle, where there's a lower life expectancy. So, so there's sort of, sort of. So the finding is, and some of these data are from Bruce Ellis down at University of Arizona, uh, females in particular hit puberty earlier when they're cues to uh, to a sort of unstable environments. Mm. One of those cues actually being father absence. That is, if your if your birth father isn't in the home, either there's a stepdad there, or there's no other dad there. Uh, girls tend to hit puberty uh, earlier. And that's sort of a fascinating effect, right? I'm not suggesting that any of the stuff that people are consciously aware of this and doing right. this kind of calculus, you know, in any conscious way. The system, the, 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 the mind system, is, is looking at these cues out there and it's engaging, it's hitting this little if button and it says, ah, yeah. maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a somewhat greater risk that I'm not going to live so long. Uh, I better start speeding up a little bit. Or it says, wow, stuff is really stable. I'm going to build some capital here. I'm going to learn these skills. I'm going to develop these relationships with people, right? I'm going to I'm going to build myself for the, all the social competition that's going to come later. Right. right. Uh, and and know, is it, this is this an epigenetic effect taking place, do you think? Uh, uh, the environment activating certain genes that that are... Creating this, you know, it, it's, it's a, definitely on like a non-conscious level. Yeah, one it's, way it's, or another, it's a great right? question. What I would say, my my first answer would be, it doesn't need to be that. Yeah, but there are, 
what there are some hints of evidence to suggest that this stuff actually moves down generationally, mm. right? Which means that it could be. So, for example, uh, uh, a woman who becomes pregnant under circumstances where there's a lot of extrinsic uh, mortality, that her own stress levels because of that unconsciously are, are triggering something uh, that would have these epigenetic effects on her offspring, which now make these offspring. I, I don't want to make any claim that that's the case. People, right. people make that kind of argument. I think it's a fascinating possibility. I don't think you need to have that to to get the effects, uh, for example, that Bruce Ellis finds with, uh, with girls hitting sexual maturity uh, uh, earlier. But you could certainly see longer-term implications of having come from uh, one of these kind of ecologies. Now that said, you know the, the mind. You know one of the things that people say about evolutionary psych is that it, everything is sort of fixed. You got this biological determinism. Right. Well, you know what? Fear is an evolved emotion. We see it in all these other kind of critters as well, right? But you're not afraid right now, and the reason you're not afraid right now is that there are no cues to engage that particular process, right? Right. So you know what what really evolves are sort of these if then relationships. So what that means is that even someone who's, uh, who, who grows up in an, in an environment uh, that's more desperate, for example, uh, they may, whether they can, it's not clear developmentally, you know, you know, at what point one can actually move from a fast strategy to a slow strategy, but if they move into a new ecology and their own kids have seen only the, the more hopeful ecology, then it's, it's not clear that those, I mean, the prediction would be that those kids would actually be way slower in their, in their behaviors than their parents were. And in fact, this in some ways is the immigrant story, right? right. You know, the immigrant story is parents come over and, and if you come over and you're a young 18-year-old male, boy, and you come over to a new country, you know, you're, you're going to do what young men do in desperate circumstances or whatever. But the next generation after that, right, uh, is starting, is, is uh, uh, if, you know, the, the, the Parents acquire, if they're successful and they're acquiring some resources and they're able to shift their ecology a little bit or the whole ecology sort of moves up and, you know, those old neighborhoods in New York that used to be where the Irish live, well, they're now, they become middle-class neighborhoods right. as opposed to poverty-ridden uh, and uh, certainly, right. evolution's equipped us with a huge variety of tools. That's right. And, and flexibility in using them. Yeah. That's right. That's depending right. on various environments. Yeah. And and so so we were, I think what got us into that was talking about um, immigrants and possibly perceiving them as having a fast strategy, That's right. which if, if you're operating on a slower strategy, that can be perceived as a threat. I suppose mm -hmm. even if you're operating on mm -hmm. a fast, a fast strategy, strategy, it's a, a That's right. threat as well. That's right. Um, uh, although you may know how to manage people who I mean if you if you grow up in an environment and you're adopting a fast strategy and others are as well you may have developed better strategies and tactics for dealing with those folks effectively street smart street smart as yeah. opposed to someone who grows up in a hopeful ecology and then gets something you ever see the movie uh, trading places Dan Aykroyd and it's uh, been a very long time Murphy. but yes and, I have anyway so I mean that's essentially about taking someone from a from a desperate ecology and putting him into the hopeful ecology and taking Dan Aykroyd this rich preppy guy and tossing him into the desperate ecology and and sort of watching, uh, uh, watching what happens. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, well, this went. Uh, time flew by way faster than I uh, anticipated. This was a fantastic conversation. Um, I better uh, m maybe we'll have um, a, we'll tie a little bow on all this. But uh, before I get to that, um, what is the charity of the week? Uh, the charity of the week is going to be Smile Train. What Smile Train does is it uh, raises money and it trains doctors and it provides cleft palate repair surgery for poor kids around the world. And the reason why I've been donating to them for a long time, the reason why I thought that would be pretty good for here is that we've been talking about the cues that people use uh, to, and to infer characteristics about others. And when people see uh, the cleft palate on these young kids, their psychology goes to disease, and they literally don't let these kids in some places even attend school. Yeah. These kids' life outcomes are horrendous. And it's and the, the first thing the you surgery, see. It's, it's right on you see, your it's face. It's right there. Yeah. It, it is disgusting if you see it the yeah. first time. You can know about this, and if you see someone, they come around the corner and do it. You know, you may mask that that, yeah. that, that, that that micro expression. You may do your best to do that, but yes, we're we're it's a it's one of those 
facial abnormalities that really grabs us, what they do is fix that. And by fixing that, they end up giving these kids all these kind of social, which then translate into very real-world opportunities via education and the like, to, to, live, uh, to live a normal life. And so that's my Charity Week smile train. I think that's fantastic. And um, in that same um, vein, if, if we want to let, uh, say, say you're a person and you, you recognize that, um, that you may at times show prejudice and, and intellectually this is something that you want to avoid, um, I think obviously one of the best ways to do it is just by educating yourself and learning about what's driving um, your behavior and the very things that we're talking about. Yeah, um, if you want to if you want to debias something, you need to know that there's a problem. You need to be motivated uh, to fix it. You have to have the resources and the commitment to sort of fix it. And so, you know, when you notice yourself, you know, one of these, you perceive something as a threat and you see yourself having this kind of reaction, you know, we're, we're equipped with this, with this frontal lobe that enables us to control these kinds of things. Just because you have this initial reaction that comes out of our lizard brain, right? Doesn't mean that, uh, uh, that we have to live with it and, and allow that to, uh, allow that to control us. So we do have, just uh, like you don't control. have to act on every whim and every exactly. impulse. You, and you and by the way, we don't. And that's a good yeah. thing. Oh. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, Steve Newberg, everybody. Uh, please go to the Here We Are Podcast dot com and check out um, more of his work and donate to the Smile Train. And thanks so much for coming on the program. Uh, thank you very much. This has been a blast. Awesome. Thanks. Hope you guys enjoyed yourselves. I thought that was a fun one. Agreed. Agreed. I thought that was a real good one. Um, and uh, make sure and go to iTunes and rate and review my podcast. When there's a hundred ratings, I'm going to release a bonus episode. When there's a hundred written reviews, I'm going to release a bonus episode. So you can go on, do both of those things in one minute, and it will yield you two future upcoming episodes that will not exist if you don't do that <laughs> so go and do that and make sure and tune in next week um still at arizona state and i'm going to be talking about uh some real cool interesting stuff um curing cancer through the use of of um microbiology and game theory and that we talked about the game of life and real uh interesting um challenging stuff so make sure and tune in for that next week with athena actipus Kyle Ayers, I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it, and here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we called clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL, the 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly-collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic. 
devilishly handsome, not even a little bit Italian looking. So get that out of your dumb brain. <laughs> Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, (laughs) he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. (laughs) Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. (laughs) 